Al Jazeera podcast. The West has united in backing Israel since Saturday's armed attack by Hamas, and Western governments have avoided criticizing the intensive Israeli bombing of Gaza. So how is Western policy towards Israel and Palestine over decades affecting the situation today? I'm James Bays, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. So now let's bring in our panel of guests to discuss it all in Doha, Abdullah Al-Aryan, Associate Professor of History at Georgetown University in Qatar. He's a specialist on US Middle East policy. In Rome is Maria Luisa Fantapie, Head of Middle East and Africa Programme for the Italian think tank Instituto Affari Internazionale. And in Dublin is Richard Boyd Barrett, a member of the Irish Parliament with the People Before Profit Party. A warm welcome to you all. Right, I would like to start with you, Abdullah, if I can. Right at the beginning and the basics. Perhaps no surprise at all, Israel is staunchly being backed by the US. Yeah, I mean, as you say, there's no surprise really in this policy. This is something that has been part and parcel of US foreign policy in this region for quite some time. But I would like to focus on maybe what some of the differences are. I think what we're seeing really over the course of the past decade or so has been a complete abandonment even of any pretense of becoming a so-called honest broker. We know the US never uh, effectively managed to offer, uh, you know, the Palestinians, of course, being, um, you know, completely, uh, you know, denied their own liberation, their own state. There was a thought in the 1990s that the United States could sponsor a process, the, the so-called Oslo Accords, as a means of providing them with statehood. But from the very beginning, I mean, really going back to the mid-90s, it was very clear that Israel had no intention of actually delivering on this two-state solution and instead used that opportunity of passivity from the Palestinian side to double and triple the number of settlements and so expansion across all of the Palestinian territories. And then, of course, later on, once we get into the mid uh, early to mid 2000s, we see this blockade of Gaza beginning and the kind of encirclement and besiegement of uh, what is now over 2 million people population. And so I think what's really distinct about the last decade in particular, you know, going back maybe to the late Obama period to then, of course, under Donald Trump, who everyone saw as being a kind of very exceptional uh, president as, as one who sort of says out loud what most U.S policymakers would never dare to speak is that he cared nothing whatsoever for the plight of Palestinians. He completely circumvented and bypassed any demands and kept them basically in the exact same situation that they continue to be in, and instead focused on this idea of normalization between Israel and a number of Arab states, all of whom, of course, found mutual benefits in that arrangement under a kind of U.S. regional security umbrella um, and along with it, of course, all of the major economic benefits. And so in the meantime, the Palestinian question was no longer even on the back burner. It simply didn't exist. There has been no discussion whatsoever. And then we get to the Biden administration and they simply inherited the Trump foreign policy to the Middle East. We've seen no distinction between what Trump was doing. Uh, you know, the Biden administration endorsed the move of the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, which was an incredibly volatile move and a, and a very daring move in a way in terms of upsetting what had been seen at that point as being something of a no-go because of the fact that Jerusalem continues to be uh, considered occupied territory by the UN, by international law. And then, of course, we see this push to double down on the normalization agreements between Israel and now with Saudi Arabia, which is kind of the big fish in all of this. So I think there is something to be said about the fact that U.S. policy has gotten even more staunchly 
um, you know, in, in opposition to any notion that there should be anything of a settlement for um, Palestinians who continue to be stateless and, and very much um, stuck in this kind of uh, apartheid situation. Maria, um, let me just ask you, you could say what we're seeing on our screens is what we've seen play out many times before in Gaza, but there are big differences too. The scale of the Israeli casualties, the largest loss of, of life in an attack in the country's history, the tactics that were used by Hamas, and also how important do you think is the fact that this time there are captives inside Gaza? No, definitely. I mean, this is uh, something uh, that is uh, quite uh, unprecedented. And uh, uh, in terms of like the level of uh, infiltrations within uh, like the, the Israeli territory, and I think to a certain extent, uh, it's uh, it's something that came also as a shock to the uh, Western and European public opinion. Uh, and this is why also uh, there has been such a sort of schizophrenic responses also from the uh, EU institution to a certain extent, because the level of the violence has been so uh, shocking uh, to the public that then this has created a very emotional response to a certain to a certain extent and uh, um, uh, definitely uh, the EU uh, has been always uh, uh, like uh, supporting the idea of the two-state solution. I think that uh, the problem has been that uh, the first uh, uh, the first responses were actually much more uh, inclined towards showing solidarity towards Israel, which is normal. But however, I think there has been a mismanagement in the communication also because uh, uh, this has created some confusion on what actually, on where the EU stands vis-a-vis -vis of this conflict. Um, so a lot of emotions uh, and a little attention, I think, for uh, the what has been the EU strategy towards this conflict for, for many years in terms of uh, EU approach and EU responses uh, in the early days of this conflict. Uh, Richard, you are also in an EU capital like Maria. Um, I want to come back to the EU, if I may. D does that emotion that Maria talks about, does that explain the fact that early White House statements seem to lack any of the usual cause, calls for proportionate response or exercise of restraint? Yes, um, I think that is the case. And, uh, I mean, take, for example, our... Minister for Foreign Affairs yesterday, where he was being interviewed, as I was, uh, on the radio. And he felt able to say that Israel was acting in self-defense. Uh, so when he was questioned about Israel's threats to uh, starve Gaza and all its population of water, of energy, of uh, food, he, he he could use terminology like self-defense. And obviously, I you know, I challenged that very, very strongly and said that it, this was not self-defense and the threat to collectively punish 2.2 million people to, uh, you know, bombard with massive artillery strikes um, the most densely populated residential area in the world were war crimes uh it, it they if you like we it, those who were speaking on behalf of palestinians were being put on the defensive uh so i think there's 
the United States and Israel feel emboldened to be able to act with greater impunity than they might otherwise uh, feel. Um, and uh, we're seeing that, you know, with the extraordinary, explicit and brazen threats by Israel to commit, and indeed they've started to commit, war crimes um, in front of the eyes of the world and say explicitly that what they're going to do, which is by any de definition is a war crime, that they're just going to do it anyway, and the United States stands firmly behind them. And many, if not most, of the European Union leaders uh, equally sort of giving legitimacy to what Israel is doing. So it really is shocking when, of course, the truth of the matter is that uh, what happened and, it, you know, the, the loss of life is terrible and everybody is is appalled by this escalation of violence. But certainly, I think I feel and many people would feel none of what happened again could have happened were it not for a 17 year long siege on Gaza, the extraordinary sort of escalation of the war on the Palestinians by the Israeli, uh, this particularly vicious Israeli government uh, of Netanyahu, Smotrich, and Ben Giver, but that is that is the real context. Uh, is the is the ongoing crimes against humanity being committed against the Palestinians? But there is no doubt that uh, Israel feels emboldened at the moment, as do its major backers. So Richard has just laid out the narrative as he sees it in the context there, Abdullah. But just tell us a bit about how this is seen in the US, because you study the US and its policy towards the Middle East. I mean, I, I watch US media as well. In fact, I, I, I live most of the time in New York, although I'm currently in Doha. 22 US citizens killed, 17 missing and maybe held prisoner. Do you think the prisoner part of it, and the word hostage is the one that's being used in the US media, do you think that perhaps explain some of, 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 of the reporting and then some of the actions by the administration? Well, certainly, I think, you know, part of it is the media coverage. I think there's a narrative that immediately takes hold the moment events like this, um, you know, happen. And that narrative tends to, in, in a kind of a very uh, one-dimensional way, you know, paint one side as an aggressor, paint one side as victim, and then erase all history, all context, all even recent events, as if you know everything just sort of occurs in this bubble, in this vacuum, on the day of of you know these these horrific events. And so I think. Can, this can is, I ask you, Abdul? You know, part um, of the, can I ask you yeah. the, the historical context of of hostage crisis? I mean, I'm going a long way back to 1979, but in fact, um, you know, Pre President Biden was one of the closest supporters of President Carter. Do you think that? historical echo may perhaps explain why, why the occupant of the West Wing is pursuing the policy he is? I don't know that, that that would necessarily be the connection. I mean, I think in general, there's been seen as this massive support for Israel in particular, because let's not forget there are Palestinian Americans that are constantly being victimized, that are constantly being oppressed, that are being killed by Israel, right? We, we know the case of your colleague, Shireen Abakla, who's a Palestinian American journalist. And if you look at uh, all of the attempts by the family to go and seek any kind of investigation on the part of the US, 
into her killing by Israel last year, um, there was almost no response, right? And the U.S. Secretary of State, who's now flying to Israel to, to have conversations uh, about the safety and return of Israeli Americans, could never do the same for Palestinian Americans. I think that's a it's, there's a fair question there as far as why has this always been the case? Why is there a double standard? Why are some American citizen lives, um, you know, worth less than others? I think this is this is certainly something that comes out of a much deeper affinity that the U.S. has always had with the state of Israel, irrespective of its actions, irrespective of, as we've seen, there's now a growing international consensus about the fact that there's an apartheid system that's in place, about the fact that we've seen violence of this scale um, on multiple other occasions, although now certainly it's been ramped up even further, in, in, in large part because of the U.S. offering a kind of a green light that we've never really seen um, up to this point. And even in terms of the, the violence that we're seeing, it's not just in Gaza, but even going into uh, the West Bank with some of the shooting sprees that we're hearing about in terms of, of um, you know, Palestinians who are essentially escaping some of these kinds of revenge attacks that we've seen. So I think that there's a there's a bigger, deeper context here that seems to be ignored. We don't hear about most of this in the U.S. media and public opinion and sympathies have certainly aligned in a very particular kind of way that is very much in keeping with the longer standing narrative, the dehumanization of Palestinians, the idea that you can have officials both in the U.S. and in Israel um, make you know incredibly dehumanizing, racist, genocidal remarks, and it goes completely un, un uh, responded to, right? Or the media does not make any kind of an attempt to challenge any of those narratives. Well, let me bring that up with Richard. I mean, some of the things you probably heard uh, from across the Atlantic, uh, parallels with 9-11, Senator Lindsey Graham, we're in a religious war and I unapologetically stand with Israel at a news <clears throat> conference in recent hours, the US Secretary of State and the Israeli Prime Minister saying Hamas is the same as Daesh or, or ISIL, whatever you call it. What do you make of all of that, that sort of language? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think Abdullah is absolutely right. Uh, I mean, I, I think public opinion over the last number of years has increasingly become aware of the, the apartheid nature of the Israeli regime, of its, uh, its you know, ongoing campaigns of ethnic cleansing, uh, it, it, its dysfunctional and sort of uh, abnormal character has been highlighted by the Amnesty International reports and the Human Rights Watch reports and other reports about the apartheid nature of that state. Um, so on the one hand, Israel has been delegitimized in the minds of millions of people, but now uh, Israel and its backers feel they have an opportunity to push back against all of that. And again, as Abdullah said, it's like they start the clock of this story at what happened over the weekend, as if there is no other context. Uh, and uh, they rely on, you know, the lack of knowledge or information or awareness of the background and history to all of this, uh, of, of, of significant sections of the public in the United States and in Europe to kind of... It, it, you know, ignore all of that history. Uh, so it, it all just started at the weekend. Now, I, I think, you know, we all know that's not true. Um, in fact, I, I will give credit to the Irish president, Mary Robinson, the former Irish president. She was being interviewed on the radio uh, just uh, about an hour ago. I was listening to her and 
she was making the point that during the summer she warned that if the siege of Gaza wasn't lifted, if the impunity Israel was enjoying in terms of the ethnic cleansing, the illegal settlements, the ongoing uh, brutal occupation, if these matters were not going to be addressed by the international community, that she feared, and this was during the summer, that we were facing into a terrifying escalation of violence, uh, an uncontrollable, I think, escalation of violence. And she was absolutely right. And that is the context. But of course, Israel, the United States, their backers in Europe want to pretend that there was no history to all of this. And it all began uh, with the events of the weekend. And they are trying to use that then to justify an even more savage uh, escalation of the war on Gaza and on the Palestinians generally. Maria, I'd like to put to you the point that Abdullah made earlier on, that this is a complete indictment of the Biden strategy on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which seems to have been, as he said, a continuation of the Trump strategy. And it basically was to ignore the Palestinians, to go round the Palestinians, try and get an economic peace um, with Arab countries. Um, what's your view of how that strategy has played out? I think that it has played out in a tragic uh, way, in the sense that uh, despite uh, definitely there are uh, local causes to this conflict that is latent, is ongoing uh, from several uh, decades, However, there is a regional context in which this attack took place. And the regional context is uh, one which for several uh, weeks and for several months, there has been enormous uh, pressure exerted by, uh, by Washington on, uh, uh, on Saudi Arabia uh, and uh, on the Gulf in general, but on Saudi Arabia in particular, to obviously uh, go ahead with this uh, normalization deal. So, um, which if uh, between Saudi Arabia and Israel. So, if this uh, normalization deal, um, which could have happened uh, against Saudi Arabia, receiving a certain amount of uh, military uh, uh, military uh, infrastructure, if this deal would have happened, obviously the Palestinian issue would have been, uh, I think, obliterated completely from the uh, from the um, from the discussion because. Uh, uh, despite the Saudis' uh, wishes or uh, statements that they wanted to deliver something on this, it seems to be that uh, actually in Tel Aviv there was no, in Jerusalem there was no actually wishes from the Netanyahu government to actually deliver anything on this. So the Israelis obviously were convinced that the Saudis could be okay just with, uh, with the military deal. The Washington administration probably thought the same. And that obviously has created a pushback. It has created a pushback, I believe, not only uh, from uh, local movements uh, like Hamas, but also, I think, from uh, many other regional players who uh, did not want uh, this cause to disappear from uh, the debate. So I think that the, the attack of Hamas in some way re uh, brings back the Palestinian issue at the very center of the regional equilibrium at the moment in which it risks to be totally um, deleted. But it is important to say that uh, Part of this uh, tragic event is also, I think, the indirect uh, and even uh, uh, indirect result of a U.S. strategy, which really forced the hand of this normalization and didn't uh, understand that in order to um, uh, to achieve normalization, you needed uh, time, you needed concession. 
but they didn't have time because there was the presidential election and they didn't want to um, make concession or they didn't want to pressure the Israeli government to make concession, it seems. And so the result has been obviously a pushback. So I think that somehow if you compare this approach with uh, what we have seen over the past months, so the Chinese approach, which has been that one of trying to actually um, uh, bro uh, break a deal between regional rivals such as Saudi Arabia and Iran, it almost comes to the point of saying that the Chinese strategy has been in so far maybe more successful. So uh, I think that uh, really there is a lot of rethinking of uh, uh, how Washington moves uh, when it comes to uh, to normalization. I think that normalization could be possible, but not without some steps forwards uh, on the Palestinian issue, which is substantial step forwards. Abdullah, we see Secretary Blinken in the region now. Um, he's not looking at the big picture. He's showing support for Israel, but he's also focusing, and we hear talk about humanitarian corridors and safe passage. There's already been detailed negotiations, we understand, between the Israelis and the Egyptians and the US, now reported that the Secretary of State will be coming to Qatar. Um, but I'm also hearing reports that Egypt's not allowing a mass movement of people into its territory. Could we be looking at a, some sort of deal where dual nationals, US nationals, we think there are about five or 600, are allowed out of Rafa and the rest of the population of Gaza gets stuck there? I mean, I, I don't think we have any indication of that as of yet, that there's a specific concern for, for U.S. citizens there. Certainly there hasn't been over the course of almost a week of, of incessant carpet bombing of the entire territory of Gaza. Um, you know, I, and I think in terms of what the response has been for people who have attempted to go to the border, of course, as we've seen, um, you know, instances of, of Israel actually bombing the crossing. And so people who are attempting to cross at that point, and then there's also been, of course, uh, the denial by Israel and the threats made that if Egypt were to try to offer aid to enter into Gaza, that they would also be bombing that those aid convoys. So, you know, there, there really is a question here about who even controls uh, the territory, the border between Gaza or Palestine and Egypt. And I think that's, you know, and, and there's another point that I think is worth considering, which is going back to, to kind of the previous conversation about the view of these normalization agreements from the Arab side as well, because I do think that, that you know, we have transitioned from a period in which, you know, many of the region's rulers would at least pay lip service to the notion of the Palestine issue to the point where it gets completely erased. And I think that's because the nature of how legitimization of these regimes happens has changed substantially in the aftermath of the Arab Spring uprisings. And so now we're looking at over a decade from that period in which many of these governments are ruling their own populations quite ruthlessly. So it's not surprising that they would not even entertain the notion of, uh, of justice for Palestinians. And so I think okay. this has actually in some ways eased the process by which these normalization deals can happen. Maria, back to you. We've seen the responses of the US and the EU and on paper, they look very similar, but do you think within the EU camp there is perhaps some unease behind the scenes? Certainly before the latest events over the last 18 months, in my day job at the United Nations, I'm speaking to EU politicians, EU diplomats who are, who are showing real disquiet about the Israeli most right-wing government and some of its activities. 
Oh, definitely, there are different. Uh, I mean, different member states have also different policies, uh, different approaches. There has been uh, uh, definitely a discomfort with uh, uh, the Netanyahu government and the retrenchment of uh, democratic freedoms in Israel. But I think that overall there has been always. Uh, uh, I mean, the discussion about. Uh, uh, supporting the Israeli concerns when it comes to security concerns of, of Israel. This is, is, is something that is always present. But I think that the other question to ask is more of what role for the EU also in this situation, because after this very confusing response where one commission came out saying we will have to cut the aid, the development, the humanitarian aid to the Palestinian territories, then, you know, there has been a going back to this position and say, no, we will not. And then, so there has been a very confusing response in the first days. I think that, however, now the EU is in, in the interest of the EU and in the interest also of the United States to really avoid um, the regionalization of this conflict. And therefore, this is why such emotional response uh, uh, and polarizing tone on the conflict are not helping. I think that the EU should sort of uh, rethink um, its approach reinvest really into the what has been like the two-state solution idea, but also and most importantly on the idea of how to um, uh, start the leveraging on those regional players, especially in the Gulf, who actually do not want a regionalization of the conflict, engage with them um, and uh, try to really um, uh, sort of support uh, a containment of this of this conflict, uh, if we can say so, and not its spread out uh, okay. across the region. Let me put that, put that to Richard, because you are just one individual EU politicians. What should individual politicians, what should members of the public do very quickly to end our conversation? Well, I, I mean, certainly what I'm doing and uh, others of like mind are trying to say, in the face of people being horrified at what they're looking at, this terrible escalation of violence, that we have to get to the root cause, that if if this is not going to get even worse uh, and uh, continue forever, uh, that we need to get to the root cause. And uh, in my view, and certainly what I have been arguing uh, very strongly, and I think many others are, is that the root cause of this is... Uh, the apartheid nature of the Israeli state, the colonialist nature of the Israeli state, that it is based on the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians, on the denial of their most basic rights, the rights to return, uh, the right to self-determination, uh, that it is based entirely on the ruthless, uh, brutal and murderous suppression of Palestinian rights. And that this, in the same way as apartheid South Africa, was not acceptable uh, and a movement eventually of resistance inside South Africa as well as internationally finally led to the dismantling of the, uh, that regime, that that is the only way we are going to get peace and justice uh, in Palestine. Thank you, Richard. Thank you to all our guests, to Maria Luisa Van Tapie, Abdullah Al-Aryan and Richard Boyd Barrett. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Abdul Rahman Shelik and Fungi Nguyen. Studio sound was by Yara Atullah. The programme was edited by Vinny Ve Lilut, Lynn Nguyen, Vanessa Connolly and Joe DeFries.
Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Friday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, Israel's government has unified and the military is preparing for a ground war in Gaza. Israelis are angry at the government for failing to protect them. But what will come of it? That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.